If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you there? Welcome to the podcast. It is Thursday's podcast. How are you, John? Good I'm very you. good. I'm very good. I was just noticing there that it's been a big uptake on the course so far, which is I brilliant. Know, it's great. It is great. I mean, it shows you that people want to learn economics in a way that's kind of comprehensible. They're like, okay, that makes sense to me. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. So, so you know, it's been fantastic and we're going to do online tutorials. I'm going to make myself available to actually go into a chat room with people because people need that sort of like maybe an hour a week or something. We're going to figure yeah. that out. But help with the wrecker. Yeah, help with the wrecker. Exactly. To help. Everyone needs help with the wrecker, you know? It's like an economics grind without an exam at the end, which is really nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's great. So yeah, again, if you if, if you want to learn economics with me, and I always think it's the best way to learn it together, because it is a fascinating subject, probably taught badly over the years, but it's brilliant. And once you get into it, you'll know, you won't look back. You know, you won't look back and come up with all sorts of mad things sitting at the bar. People will think, oh my God, where did they find that? Okay. Little nuggets. Little nuggets. Okay. So it is adrian.com forward slash David McWilliams if you want to join us and learn economics together. So that's great, John. I've been noticing the Brits have been playing kind of silly burgers with this protocol. Have you noticed this? I have noticed. I mean, this is, it's an endless thing. Isn't it? But, but you know, at this stage, their credibility and their trustworthiness is out the window. It's completely out the window. And you know the extraordinary thing about the protocol? right, is that the protocol gives Northern Ireland the opportunity to have one foot in the UK camp, one foot in the European camp. Yeah. They don't be want to. Unbelie- but be unbelievably open. What I would say to the unionists, right, the only way in which the unionists can preserve the union is if they make Northern Ireland work for everybody. Making it work means more job opportunities, yep. more economic opportunities, more investment, etc. So why not turn Northern Ireland into a trading, attractive hub for multinationals? Do what we did, but do it better. Yeah, Learn from our mistakes. Do it better. True, they no. don't have a housing crisis the same way, right? Think yeah. about what they have. They've got good infrastructure. They have a very educated population. They have access to the UK. They have access to the EU. Everybody is on there. Everyone realizes they're like a kind of a problem child. So everyone's saying, look, let's give them a hand. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And for the unionists, you should say, look, make it work, man. But they they didn't even experience the same level of disruption, fuel disruption, as the rest of the UK did. No, because it works better. But they don't see that. I know, I know. It's funny. But again, just see 
that this is an opportunity. We'll come back to the, this idea of the unions. The yeah. People who never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. <laughs> like, here it is on a plate. And stop being a pawn for these Brexiteer Tories who don't care about you. They really don't. They don't care about you. And that's really you. obvious. Yeah, they it's don't. so obvious. So stop playing their game. Say, hold on a second, we have something here. Realise you're going to have to share the island with everybody else at some stage and actually get on with it. Yeah. So what else has been happening this week? Well, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm, I'm going to Vicar Street. Lucy's playing in Vicar Street tonight and tomorrow night, which is going oh, yes. to be fantastic. Fantastic, yeah. Yeah, no, she's, and it's big. We've done Vicar Street ourselves. It's a big yeah, venue. Yeah, it's a big venue. A veteran of We are veterans. Of, we've, we've played Vicar Street ourselves. <laughs> but, you know, it's a big, big venue. And when you come out on stage there, you know, you realise, wow, there's a yeah, lot of people. how she's feeling about it. Great, she's flying. I mean, the great thing about when you're when you're when you're that age, it's like, whoa, here yeah, we go. Yeah, yeah. You know? She's doing some brilliant writing at the moment. Yeah, she's doing she's doing a lot of writing. She's gonna she's I think she's got six or seven tracks. She's gonna she's gonna open for an act called a very good singer called Tulu Mackay, who is Nigerian, born in Ireland, I think. Beautiful voice, yeah. Whole thing, sort of R and B, quite funky stuff. Lucy's going to open first, so it's great. You know, she's oh, opening exciting times. It's exciting, Whoa, yeah, it is exciting times. And then she's opening. I told you for Arlo Parks, who's a really big, big. She won Mercury yeah. Prize yeah, in London yeah, yeah, in a couple yeah. of weeks' time at the Shepherd's Bush O2, which is again a yeah. big place. So she's been on um, Jules quite a few times. Yeah, Jules, she's very good. She's and really, really brilliant. Good. Yeah, and a really gorgeous voice. Very, very beautiful lyrics. Great storyteller. Yeah. So anyway, so it's all, they all go in the rock and roll household. Fantastic. <laughs> oh man. So that's, that's my thing. But actually what I want to do is I want to link that just little bit about Northern Ireland. I want to forget talking about Northern Ireland, but link it to the ideas. How do small countries figure out their place in the world? This is a huge, huge question that yeah. every country, right? So if you end up, it's a bit like you've got to stand out. You've got to do something a little bit different, you know? So if you end up doing the same as everybody else, then you'll get the same results as everybody else. But if you stand out a little bit, now I want to bring it back to the tax rate here, but I also want to talk to somebody in the States who's really, really well connected, right? Because what happens at small countries, you've got to figure out how do we get capital in here? How do we get labor in here? Yeah. How do we fuse them together? How do we become the Tinder for ideas that yeah. I talked about? You know, how do yeah. you get everything going so it's a so it's so it's a it's a cauldron of exciting things in a society, right? Yeah. And it can be done, but how you do that is you figure out that you're only a small player in a big world, right? That sovereignty is all very well and it's all fine and all that sort of stuff, but ultimately you have to understand that all we are is a small player in a huge world. There's only on this island. There's only what. Together, seven million of us. Yeah, yeah. In a popula- global population of seven billion. Yeah, but as it's as we always say, it's it's about playing to your strengths. Yeah, recognizing your strengths and playing to them, uh, and even inventing new strengths. Yes, no, yeah, 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 true. So, John, what I'm now going to talk to is Alec Ross. Okay, he's a visiting professor at Bologna Business School. Right, he's also the author of New York Times bestseller, The Industries of Future. He spent the last ten or fifteen years working in the Obama administration and working for working for Hillary Clinton and basically being in the background about that most extraordinary time yeah. in American politics, yeah. right? As the technology advisor. And what he has is an ability to talk tech with the Silicon Valley, the you know, the tech bros, Silicon yeah, yeah, Valley, yeah, yeah. understand what they're talking about, understand what they're getting at. But because he's a public policy analyst, to also appreciate that the interests of Silicon Valley are not necessarily the interests of the world. 
that you have to actually leaven all these exciting technological changes. Well, what is that going to do to society? How is that going to change people's day-to-day lives? Who's winning? Who's losing? And if people are losing, what do we do to actually make sure that the losers don't feel completely shortchanged, that the winners pay something to the losers? So you need people like Alec. He's a really, really good egg. He's on the line. He's in Washington. So let's go and talk to Alec Ross. Alec Ross, how are you? I'm fantastic. It's great to talk to you, David. Great, great. Listen, Alec, before we talk about the book, because I was actually speed reading it the other night. It's excellent. It's really fascinating stuff. And for our audience this week, given that the global tax uh, policy has changed, it's actually very opposite. It's right on time. It's right on time. But I want to talk to you about personalities, right? You worked for both Obama and Hillary. Tell me about I that. Did. Tell me about these two individuals. What contrasting styles? What are they like? What do they like to work for? When they come to the table, what do they bring? So they're, they're two very different personalities in a certain respect. Let me first talk about Obama and then talk about Hillary in this respect. So Obama is what you see on TV in terms of the dignity. He is, he, he commands a room um, in a remarkable way with his dignity. And for those of us who worked for him, and I worked for him for six years, you know, a lot of the time we think of our politicians as fraudsters or corrupt or other such things. And whatever faults Barack Obama may have had, not only did you come close to the line of doing something immoral or, or unethical, but you never entered the postal code of something immoral or unethical because that was just how he ran. And then with Hillary, it's interesting too. She, I think people don't oftentimes see the IQ. You know, she really has enormous processing power. They're both very smart, but, they're, but they also have one difference that I'll point out to you, David. Barack Obama, if he is speaking in a square of 100,000 people, He's very warm. It's very intimate. He's connecting with each of the 100,000 people. But if he comes to dinner, if he comes to dinner, he's a bit not cool, but formal. You know, the, the knot in the tie doesn't loosen. By contrast, if Hillary speaks to a, a square full of 100,000 people, she comes off as cool, like a lawyer. But if she comes to dinner, she's going to go pint for pint with you. And she's going to ask about your personal life and your love life and all that. So you know, they're very different. Alec, it's really interesting. I interviewed Hillary Clinton about 15, maybe 16 years ago for a TV show that I presented in Ireland. And that's exactly what happened. We went to her office in Washington. And before the camera was on, so it was just me and her chatting. The sound man was there. The cameraman was there. We were trying to get her act together. You know, she was almost chit-chatty, kind of girly, flirty, laughing, telling jokes, all that sort of stuff. And I was thinking, wow, this is really interesting. Ironically, the minute the camera went on, she adopted a sort of slightly presidential, slightly aloof, slightly, and, and it was more, rather than talking, she was kind of messaging. And you could sense that. And it was something that was obviously deep in, in, inside her, that that very very feminine, very chatty, almost kind of girly way she used to speak in, in private just disappeared. So there's a backstory to that, David. Okay. Um, um, among the many times Hillary got mad at me. <laughs> okay. One time, you know, because we all see this. All of us who know her and are her friends, we've all seen this. And so one time I said to her, I said, Madam Secretary, I wish you would go on camera and speak the way that you speak to us after you've had a glass of wine. 
And what she said to me, she goes, Alec, when I do that, she goes, it goes well 95% of the time. But then I say something and, you know, it's taken poorly and things go off the rails. So the example that she gave me, she said she did an hour long interview with 60 Minutes, a news program in the United States. And for 95%, she was the Hillary that you saw and that I loved. But at one point, she said, uh, when Bill and I left the White House, we were broke. Now, technically, that was accurate, but it infuriated listeners. It's all people paid attention to. And it's because she relaxed for a minute. And so she does. She, t- she knows she tightens up. She's heard from all of her friends about this. Um, but that's a little bit of the backstory is she just... There yeah, is no no quarter given to her. And she's just guarded all the time. And that comes across as slightly robotic. Was the uh, deplorables comment one of those moments, do you think? Exactly. You got it, John. No, I mean, when she said that, you know, X percent of Trump supporters are deplorable, she was speaking like she was speaking to David McWilliams before the red light went on. Yeah. But it's a choice of word that... If you're Hillary Clinton and the red light is on, it can blow you up. And that is exactly, exactly a perfect example, John. Alec, can I just talk to you a bit about uh, Barack Obama? Because the legacy is unusual. I mean, people are now saying he had eight years in the White House. Yes, he was hamstrung and it was difficult and American politics is difficult and it's tricky and, you know, majorities and not majorities and slim majorities and no majorities, all that stuff. But is there a sense that maybe it was a missed opportunity in terms of pushing his own agenda? Yes. (laughs) I mean, it it ended up being, in many respects, a third Clinton term. It was technocratic. It was competent. It was incrementalist. um, But it lacked the boldness that I think was expected of him. And I was on the presidential transition team. And it really, you could see it begin to happen from the first moment of the transition when a lot of the old, you know, we were on the campaign, I ran tech policy for his first presidential campaign. And it was very much a sort of insurgent movement that included economists and CEOs and what have you. But from the moment of the transition, sort of the old war horses came in and sort of took over. And it became a third Clinton term in a certain respect. And so I do feel like it's sort of the stone in our shoe now. We walk around, those of us who work for him, feeling like we should have made mistakes of commission rather than mistakes yeah. of omission. Yeah, no, no, I can see that. And I can, I can, but I can also see how the first black president needs to be uber cautious because the opprobrium will fall on top of his head if he made, er, if he made early mistakes would have been phenomenal and would have blown, yeah, that- blown the, sort of the dream-like quality because the dream is important. No, that's that's exactly right. And if and if Barack were talking to you right now, I think he would say that he was carrying the weight of a historic change with him into the White House. And if he looked like a crazy person, and there is this racist trope about African Americans in the United States that they can be a bit crazy and a bit unhinged. So Obama had to stay cool, but from a policy standpoint, particularly at the end. We should have pushed harder. We should have made mistakes of commission rather than omission. Do you think, before we talk about the raging 20s, do you think Biden is maybe picking up from the midterm Obama and saying, there's stuff to do that we could have done eight, 10 years ago, but we're going to do it now? I think so. So, yes. So it's interesting. If you actually look at his agenda, 
it's much more FDR than Clinton or Obama. Uh, the test now is can he get it done? Um, but if you actually look at the substance, I mean, my goodness, it's the it would be the largest expansion of the safety net in the United States in over 50 years since Lyndon Johnson was president. And I look, I worked pretty closely with Biden, and this was not very Biden-esque. I mean, Biden was a very centrist sort of horse trading senator and vice president. And I do think that he is, he at particularly at the beginning has shown a willingness to be audacious, but I also see the team getting beaten down a bit right now by having to actually implement a slightly audacious program. So we'll see if they fight their way through it. Well, listen, let's, that's fascinating insights. Cause again, I, I always, I love, I love talking to people who are actually in the room. Uh, speaking of being in the room, what was your most interesting, I'm not going to say scary or jubilant, most interesting moment with both those characters, Obama and, and Clinton? They were both in the White House Situation Room, which I think, you know, you've probably seen in the movies, right? Yeah. Or you've seen pictures of it. And the interesting thing, you know, I won't say what the topic was when we were in the White House Situation Room, but what was very interesting is that the matter being discussed basically required decisions to be made that were going to produce a body count. You know, if X occurs, Y number of people die. If Y occurs, Z number of people are going to die. And was, what was fascinating was watching both Hillary and Obama. They were both as cool as the other side of the pillow, sort of anti-Trump, where Trump would, you know, I didn't, I, you know, I obviously didn't see Trump in the White House Situation Room, but by all accounts, emotional, yelling, draw, getting to conclusions. And Obama was just very cool and analytical, and the stakes couldn't have been higher. So it was the uh, Osama bin Laden moment. I wasn't in the room for Osama bin Laden. <laughs> <laughs> they did. They, I think I was actually at the White House Correspondents' Dinner that night. I think I was at the. I think I. I, I think I had a few cocktails in my belly, and I had no idea what was going on. I was not. I was not read into that operation in real time. Fair enough. Let's let's talk about the book, Alec. It's the raging twenties, companies, countries, people, and the fight for our future. Very opposite. I'm going to ask you about the main two or three big thesis, but I'm also going to do it against the background of the shift in global taxation, corporate taxation announced this morning uh, and over the weekend. But tell me, what is your main thesis here or your main couple of theses? So my main point here is that whether the future looks more like Mad Max or more like Star Trek at the <laughs> end of this decade, that's begun rather poorly all hinges on a few decisions we make in the coming years. You know, it reminds me in many respects of the 1840s, David. Uh, you know, the Engels pause, this period from, the, from 1800 to 1840 where we saw massive change as the base of, the, of Western European economies went from being agricultural to industrial. But we didn't have anything like a minimum wage. We didn't have child labor laws. We didn't have pensions if you worked in the factory for 30 years. And then what did that produce? That produced the largest wave of revolutions in Europe's history. It produced ideological movements like Marxism. The Communist Manifesto was written in 1848. So I think we're at another one of those inflection points like the 1840s or the 1920s, where we have an opportunity to reimagine the economies and the social contract that we want. We're at one of those very special inflection points, and we can't blow it. 
And it's funny you talk about 1840 because 1848 is the year of European revolution. So there's revolutions everywhere, one in Ireland as well, uh, but everywhere, particularly you've got France, you've got Germany, you've got Austria, you've got all sorts of extraordinary things going on, leading to or coinciding with the publication of the Communist Manifesto, which opens with the line, I remember, there is a spectre haunting Europe. It is the spectre of communism. I think that's the opening line of the manifesto. What spectre is haunting us then? Rage. The, it's fascinating. Whether it is comes from the right or the left, the one thing that I think is unifying increasingly violent, distressed populaces right now is this rage. And I see it much more in the United States than I see elsewhere right now. But we did see early indications of this, for example, in France with Gilets jaunes. We have seen the seeds of it elsewhere. But I do think that Unfortunately, I, the, the rage is building right now, and it's a byproduct of a couple things. I tend to focus on the economic dimensions of it, but it also has its roots in you know, our news and information environment. But rage is really what we have to fear here. And it's interesting because rage is usually the emotion that is driven not by potency, but by impotency. The people get, the kids get angry because they have no power. Because somebody else tells them what to do. And that's why they get teenagers get so freaked out. So you're, are, we, are we talking about an, a sort of a lack of power of the average person? That's exactly what we're talking about. So I'm from, I'm from the coal-filled hills of West Virginia. And this is a place right now that is the very caricature of rage. So they, they are, and look, I'm just by way of disclosure, I worked as a midnight janitor and on a beer truck. There is no blue blood in this body. So I come from sort of the... Appalachian working class. And I got out in a certain respect, you know, I got good college degrees and what have you. But when I go back and visit my parents, uh, what I see are these emasculated, angry, white men who have grown angry and they've grown politically radicalized. And we see it now, not just on the political right, we see it on the political left, but it comes from exactly that which you're describing, David which is impotency, the sense that they don't have agency, the sense that they are pawns on a chessboard, either of states or of large corporate actors. And let's talk about the, the, the we've, we've done the states. Let's talk about the corporate actors. Let's talk about corporations. We'll come back to the state in a second. But uh, given the news of the last couple of days and the change in global taxation and the move to eliminate tax havens and the move to bring tax revenue back to where it should belong as opposed to where it's just booked uh, and domiciled. What do you make of, of this move? And, and where do you think that brings the argument forward towards? I think, it's, I think it's very important. And, you know, I think one thing, since, you know, you're in Ireland right now, one thing that I would flag, because obviously this has caused some distress in Ireland, is Ireland isn't going back to a beer and biscuits economy. No, it's not. It's, it's absolutely not. And if you look like, U.S. multinationals employ, I think, 180,000 some people in the Republic of Ireland and directly support many others. And in anticipation of this conversation, actually, David, I made some calls to senior contacts at Apple and Google. I'm glad I didn't that call you Facebook. prepare for the podcast the way John does. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. No, but I called very senior. I won't name them, but they're very senior at both companies. And I said, well, with this move potentially from 12.5% to 15% and the idea of a global minimum tax, what does this mean for the Republic of Ireland as it relates to your business? And what they said is there may be a little bit of 
balance sheet gymnastics in the future. But in terms of employment, in terms of growth, in terms of it remaining a base in operation, they love Ireland. They're staying. The levels of, you know, they like the new university grads. They like the business environment. So I think that ultimately this is going to be good because I feel like tax, you know, if you are growing your economy based on your tax practices, it's like growing an economy based on carbohydrates as opposed to protein. But if you're growing your economy based on real employment and rising wages and things like this, which I think the Republic of Ireland is going to continue to benefit from, it's like growing your economy based on protein. Yeah, no, I actually couldn't agree with you more. I think there's a huge amount of hysterical commentary. And it's kind of like like a lot of the commentary. There's a, On the left, there is a movement of just desserts and look, we told you so, and consequently, they're all going to leave. And on, on the right, it is the, uh, I can't believe you don't think low taxation is a good idea and they're all going to leave. But consequently, you know, they end up in the same place, the left and the right. But it does strike me that as an economy matures, tax is definitely part of the arsenal, but not the only one. And that's, a, no. that's very, very clear to me. It's, it's absolutely right. And I do think we are at the point, you know, with the Irish economy where there's a moment to reimagine the Irish economy that you want for 2030, which ought to look different than it did in 2020 and different still than in 2010. So this is an opportunity, I think, to increasingly pivot toward an increasingly knowledge-based economy. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. An entrepreneurial, in actual fact, the podcast we did the other day was on about creating this entrepreneurial state and maybe using some of the extra tax revenue, which there will be, because as you increase your rate, once the volume settles down, you'll actually get a bigger tax receipt. But maybe to put it into something like a sovereign wealth fund, and then that sovereign wealth fund could be used as a startup fund, not a pension fund, because frankly, we're, 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 we're well covered on the pension side and demographics is on our side for quite a while. But on the startup side, there is a financial risk always in startups and maybe you could use some of that fund to de-risk it. But that's a another another idea. It's just this it's it's the idea of how do you build this country better because small countries only need to do small things right and not make mistakes to actually grow quite strongly. Bigger countries like the United States have got all sorts of other issues that you've got to deal with. So let's talk about the states. Let's talk about American corporations. You're quite tough on corporations in the book. You're quite tough on shareholder value. Let's let's start there. Indeed. Well, look, I think that, first of all, I should say I'm a capitalist. You know, I am not some shrieking, you know, fist-clenched leftist calling for the dismantling of capitalism. What I am saying is that in a world where the Federal Express driver pays more in tax, one Federal Express driver pays more in tax than Federal Express, or one 16-year-old barista making your cappuccino at Starbucks pays more in federal tax than Starbucks Corporation, then there's something unjust about that. I also think that you know we need to look at, and I'm again, I am not anti-big tech, and I actually think it's a little intellectually lazy to take all of these big technology companies and put them in a single basket, because Amazon is actually quite different than Apple, which is quite different than Facebook, which is quite different than Google, which is quite different than Microsoft. But what I will say is that I feel like we are, in many respects, more governed by companies than by countries. You know, across many of these issues, the terms of service of many of these companies have more to do with what my family actually does over the course of a day than, you know, what my sovereign state does. And I just, and look, I don't, I'm not saying that obliterating these companies would solve the problem, but what I 
do say is we need to begin to have a serious dialogue looking at the power of some of these multinationals and fixing those things that we do feel need to be fixed. I mean, I think that in terms of a theory and an ideology, shareholder value, I suspect, was a Jack Welch championed idea, Milton Friedman prior to that, uh, very much saying he who owns rules. And that is, for me, the antithesis of democracy. If you think that democracy is basically, you know, one man, one vote, uh, that's profoundly interrupted by a notion that the rich guy gets the best seat at the table. So you have these two conflicting things going on. To what extent do you think now we're in a new phase where shareholder value will look like the idea of the late 20th century, early 21st century, and will basically be dropped? I, I hope that that's the case. I mean, let me, let me give you just a little data behind the rage. Why are people angry? If the level of inequality just in the United States had stayed at a constant level over the last 40 years instead of widening to its current Mad Max-like state, it would have meant that $50 trillion would have gone to workers earning below the 90th percentile, which is an additional $1,100 every single month for every single worker. That's a direct byproduct of shareholder capitalism. I mean, think of that, under 90%, $1,100 every single month. month for every month. So why are people angry? Why are people angry? It's because, again, I'll use American data, which I understand the best. Over the last 30 years, the top 1% have grown $21 trillion richer, while the bottom 50% have grown $900 billion poor, and the middle class is stagnated. So that is shareholder capitalism. Stakeholder capitalism says that, you know what, we're capitalists, and we're going to make money. But as we make money, instead of every last cent, not 99 cents on the euro, but the entire euro going to shareholders, we're going to give some to our employees. We're going to invest some in our communities. And we're going to ban things like share buybacks, which from my standpoint, have all of the, have all of the value of a bonfire of banknotes. Then let's, let's focus on this buying back your own shares idea, because this always seemed to me to be an extraordinary mechanism to enrich a tiny, tiny amount of people. And yet it wasn't even regarded as something that should be taxed in any discriminatory way. So explain that to me, because this is happening all the time. In fact, I suspect you have the data and you have the numbers, or maybe you don't, but like a certain percent of the rise in the S&P 500 over the last 10 years has been as a result of this financial jiggery-pokery involving buying back your own shares. Do you see the Biden administration changing their attitude to this? Look, I have not, first of all, I hope so, but I haven't seen any material action yet. And this, you know who this hits is the middle class. Let me give a very concrete example. Over the past decade, over the past decade, Boeing, who makes those airplanes, had $58 billion in free cash flow. $43 billion of that $58 billion uh, went to buy back its shares and therefore push up its share price. What that meant is that those $43 billion didn't go into making safer planes. The airlines, America's five big airlines, $49 billion of free cash flow over a decade, 47 billion of which, 47 billion of which went into share buybacks. So what happens? We get a global pandemic, COVID, and all of these airlines want a bailout. 
They couldn't tap those $47 billion because they were used to prop up the share. So who pays? The middle-class taxpayer pays. It's, 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 it's an extraordinary example. It shows you how the, the rapacious uh, capitalist Michael O'Leary, uh, the runner of Ryanair, actually runs his company much better because they, they actually sit on cash. And he said, look, you know, his, his view is like, this is a cyclical business. He who sits on cash will be able to buy assets in the downturn. And that's what I'm going to do. So we're not going to pay our share. We're going to, you know, he's, he's, his attitude has always been quite interesting, the share price. It's like, yeah, whatever. You know, the share price is a price, but it's one of many prices I'm dealing with every day. Let's come back to solutions, right? Because we have inequality. We have rage. We have populism. We have fragility of the underlying social contract. You frame it in this sort of century like we could be at the beginning of the 1840s, culminating with 1848 and communist manifesto, and obviously the communist movement. Solution-wise, if we want to get to more Star Trek than Mad Max, what have we got to do? So there are a handful of things. I mean, first of all, we do exactly the kind of tax reforms we've discussed. I think 99% of the people listening to this podcast right now, David, could pay less in tax if suddenly the wealthiest corporations and individuals do. Number two, the reason why industrialization worked is because as we innovated technologically, we also innovated in our public policy. So for example, during the 19th century, we created and institutionalized this concept of pensions. Hey, you work in the factory for 25, 30 years, you get a pension afterwards. But I've got three children, all of whom are teenagers right now. And I highly doubt that the work world that they enter will be one where they have a single employer for 30 years, at the end of which they get a pension. So the question for me is, all right, big brains out there, what is the pension for the next generation that will be much more mobile in the workforce? I think about education. Our model of education, again, the calendar of education is rooted in 19th century norms. And the idea that you could get a free education until you're about 18 the idea was that if you don't go to university, you can go work in the port factory, mine, or mill. So now that we're in a world of necessary lifelong learning, let's rethink how we create the ability to do lifelong learning. So our social contract right now is rooted almost entirely in programs that are nearly 200 years old. And so across all of these, we have the opportunity, I think, to do big, bold things that reflect the economy as it exists today. Give me an example, let's say, on pensions, because I know there's a lot of people listening and they're, they're not worried about pensions, they're younger, but in the back of their heads, there is this notion that I'm not really going to be looked after in 20 years' time or 30 years' time. What could you do to change that? What, what sort of conversation would you have to have to start thinking about it maybe in a slightly different way? Right. So one, th- one possibility is the idea of a mobile pension where a very small amount of your paycheck goes into uh, a sort of an account, a sort of savings or investment account. And I frankly would prefer for it to be an investment account because, you know, you as you know, as well as anybody that over a period of time, equities rise in value. And they, the possibility could then be instead of having an employer match, have a public match have the federal government pay some small amount to incentivize you to put more into your pensions. But you tether it to the individual and to the state instead of to the employer or to a sector of the economy. And I, th- I think, that, I mean, something like that seems not that far away. If I, if I actually think about it, this is, this is not a big deal. This is, no, not, it's this not. is not a revolutionary moment that would have huge opposition. In fact, I think most people would kind of, what they do, pension shrug their shoulders and say, yeah, that sounds okay. 
Yep. I mean, it's interesting. There is there is an increasing way to an ownership class, at least in the United States. This app Robinhood has really revolutionized things here, where you don't have to have a lot of money. You've got this app on your phone called Robinhood, which, oh, by the way, you know, they, they chose that name for a reason. And the idea essentially is that there's a new ownership class of young people who don't necessarily have to come from the world of capital of the richest 10% to participate in markets. And yes, they'll do foolish things like get involved in trading strategies that they ought not, and they'll lose money. But as we also know, the math suggests that over the long term, equities, these assets rise in value. And I think that growing the ownership class, having more owners of equity, having more owners of assets, as opposed to everybody just being relying on labor, ultimately, I think, will spread the benefits of capitalism. Now we can conclude, Alec, this is Marxism without Marx. (laughs) <laughs> Except that it's rooted in public equities. It's rooted and it's rooted in the market. So what I don't want to do, I don't want to destroy the market. I don't want to take incentives out of the market. One thing that I think Marx got wrong is he insufficiently understood the necessity of a private sector to drive efficient economic outcomes. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I must admit, I, I always tell my students at Trinity, start with Marx, but don't end with them. So if, exactly. you, if you look at the world from a market's perspective, that there's labor, there's capital, there's all these various interests around, great place to start, but don't end up at fast capital's conclusion because you will end up impoverishing yourself. And this is part of our just being human too, honestly. We are not ants. You know, we are not efficient little economic units that, that sublimate themselves to the overall concept of the greatest common good. No, we are inherently selfish beasts that want to maximize, not the community good oftentimes, but the individual good. So we have to account for our humanity as we develop our economic systems. Alec Ross, we will leave it there. Listen, it's a great read. I advise anybody listening to the podcast, have a gander. It's on shelves now, the raging 2000s. Alec, we will have you on again. Would you fancy coming back to talk to us about all sorts of issues? Because we need, we need a man on the inside in the United States to give us what's going down. Look, I would love to. No, it's a great pleasure. I, I have a lot of respect for your work, David. I love what I particularly like is you're taking economics and making it more broadly accessible. I mean, that's what I try to do with this book. It's like, yes, everybody, I know tax is fucking boring and I know it's fucking complicated, but it's really important. It's really important. Like, that's why I told the Marcos belt story. Like, I tried to, you know, I used the story of, you know, buying a belt and tracking the money. Yeah. So I, I love what you're, look, I love what you're doing with the podcast. And I'd be very happy to be your guy who sort of actually knows, actually knows and talks to the people Fantastic. who are on the inside, I- you know, you have, some of this. you have now just done your <laughs> finest on-air interview with a vicious employer. No, Alex, that would be great. That would be really wonderful. Because as I said to you at the start, testimony beats analysis. The idea yeah. that you know the people we're talking about, you know how they tick. Because we concluded there that humans matter. And we forget that humans really matter because it's humans make these decisions, not robots. No, I do. And, you know, look, I read a lot of the analysis and then I talk to the people actually there. And, and a lot of it does come down to human stuff. So it's like, is, is Biden going to win? And part of it, you know, some of the actual reasons why he may or may not succeed this year come down to some very human things. Like, it's like a football match right now. The Republicans have 11 men on the pitch. Biden has nine. Like, silly, stupid things like he's massively understaffed. Biden can't work 14 hours a day. 
you know, it's some yep. of the, there are actually some funny little details behind some of the challenges, and it's not all grand geopolitics, you know, like you read in the textbook. Absolutely. Listen, Alec, that's great stuff. We're going to come back to you. You are now fully fledged member of the team. <laughs> great, great to talk right. to you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So now see, we've snaffled yet another quite uh, he was impressive a, American correspondent for the podcast. He was a bit of a humdinger, wasn't he? Yeah, he was no, Alec is great. It's really, really good. He was actually introduced to me by a fellow called Douglas Alexander, who is a Scottish guy who we're going to talk to very, very soon, who was the UK trade secretary right. I under knew Blair. I knew the name, yeah. Fascinating guy. Unbelievably well-connected, but also unbelievably astute view of the world. He's doing a documentary on BBC Radio 4 in, I think, about a week's time on climate change ahead of the Oh, Copenhagen, okay, that would be good. Ahead of the COP26. COP26. So we're going to talk to Douglas, and he is a mate. And what you, what you realise is that there's an extraordinary amount of good thought going on about the world. Like sometimes you, everyone gets a bit depressed and says, oh my God, the world's going to hell in a handbasket or a state of chassis, yeah. as uh, our friend would say, Sean O'Casey. Right. But equally, there's lots of good stuff going on. And I think that idea of we have inherited the legacy of 200-year-old thinking about pensions, yes. about education, about work, about the state, about the company, all these things. That, and and I they're like, taken as the norm. They're taken as the norm. Whereas he's saying that we could be at this inflection point, you know, this idea of the 1840s. Now, for Irish people, the 1840s is the famine. Yeah, so yeah. we're completely at odds with the rest of the world's interpretation of the 1840s. For the rest of the world, particularly Europe, the 1840s is a radical period of political and left-wing upheaval. Yeah. For us, it was just an environmental catastrophe, which was then added to and unbelievably amplified by appalling policies regarding yeah. laissez-faire and free mm, trade and mm. all that sort of stuff. We can come back to that. That's a Pandora's box you don't really want to open, but you don't know what I'm talking about. But that idea that this choice for this decade 
is do we end up with Mad Max and deep, deep inequality and sort of a crazy state? Or do we end up with a sort of a Star Trek, sort of slightly <laughs> more benign vision of technology in the future? I mean, that's a really good way to put it. And, 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 and the Mad Max thing isn't that far away. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> it is, you know, because if you look at states that become profoundly unequal, I remember when I was down in Argentina talking to Argentinian friends of mine, and Martin, of course, still lives in the city, right? Yeah. But a lot of people that I knew have moved out of the city, out of Buenos Aires, they've moved into kind of gated communities. Oh, right. That's not a, that's not a good not sign. A good, it's, not a good, it's not a good look at all. And they're afraid of violence. They're afraid of all this. But they, then they become the symbol of oppression for the people who are yeah. poor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, and that's the sort of dystopian view that he's painting. That the United States has a choice. Either it can become Canada or Mexico. Yeah, right? yeah. And it's on the way, under Trump, it was on the way to becoming Mexico. Huge inequality. The rich get all the, all the assets, as he's, Alec was talking about there. Yeah. And basically, you spend more money on defense than you do on health, right? Yeah, yeah. It's kind yeah. of mad stuff. But it was, it was, it was that thing, at the, like that shift that seems to be happening away from shareholders and more towards stakeholders. You know, that, yeah. old, that old phrase that I, as you know, I absolutely can't abide is business is business, you know? No, it's not. Business it's not. is everything. Absolutely. And uh, the way you behave in business and the way you behave reflects the way you think about the world. Mm. You know, but that idea, that microscopic shareholder value, which was largely came from Friedman, but then was really amplified by Jack Welch, yes. who I worked for. Yes, I know. The, you said GE, you were saying right? Has at its root this appalling idea that it's okay for the rich to get very rich because it'll all trickle down to the poor. Yeah. And, you know, there is no way. That happens. We know that doesn't happen. Yeah. So I think Alec was fascinating. We'll have him on again as our US correspondent. Our, our ever-growing team. Our ever-growing team of, <laughs> uh, of correspondents around the world. And uh, it'll be just like a big, mad WhatsApp group. Yeah. That's what the podcast... I look forward to Christmas party. The, yeah, the podcast will turn into a mad WhatsApp group of people all over the world. Brilliant stuff. Listen, talk to you Monday. To all you Patreons out there, thank you so much for supporting us. We couldn't do this without your support. It means a huge amount to us. Also, all your feedback, your suggestions, your comments, our comments to you, our replies to you, really is the essence of the whole thing. So, again, thank you very much. And for all of you who might want to support us, check us out. Patreon.com forward slash David Mike Williams. <laughs>